of the two trees. I'm sure those of you who had not read more recently have boned up in the last week on what uh, Jim Rector and John Reitenbaugh, perhaps others, have said about the subject. Um, and I'm not here to say, as I said last week, that all that was wrong. There was certainly a great deal of good information there. Uh, and I think that a lot of it, if not certainly most of it, was correct. So I'm not here to put down those papers whatsoever. Uh, there may be a few points here and there that I might look at differently. You might. And there might be subject to a certain amount of discussion. Some of it's speculative, certainly. But <clears throat> what I want to do is bring it to us and see if we can see perhaps a bigger dimension, a bigger picture from that episode in the Garden of Eden than perhaps what we have grasped to improve our overall understanding of God and man and the plan of God for man. Those are things that are foundational and important to us. There are some questions to ask, and these are questions that have been asked off and on by different people, scholars, individuals, whoever, churches. Was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil good or evil? It was a long time ago. What difference does it make? What does it symbolize or represent to us today? Because if it has nothing to do with our lives, then why bother? So is it an important issue then, considering the lapse of time since that occurred? How does the rest of the Bible reflect back on that fateful day? Or does it have any impact at all? Is it discussed as we go forward through the Bible? I think we can all think of places that refer back to the Garden of Eden and to Adam and Eve and so on. So yes, obviously, it's brought forward by various gospel writers. But what does it all mean? Uh, the, basically, the Protestant world thinks that it was a tree of evil. And even the church, to a great degree, I think, have believed over the years that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was evil. Now, it did produce death when it was eaten of, did it not? Death is an enemy, as 1 Corinthians 15 shows us. It is the last enemy that will be overcome. So death is bad. You don't want to die. I don't want to die. And I certainly don't want to die eternally. And yet it is appointed for all of us at least once to die, maybe twice, depending upon the circumstance and what we do. So, if death is an enemy, and through eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, mankind was then destined to die, does that make the tree evil? Because looking at it from that standpoint, I can see how someone would reason that if the fruit was bad, then the tree needs to be hacked down or not imbibed of or partaken of in any way that it was evil clear through. Someone even brought up this week the analogy of or the symbolism of the leaven 
and how a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So if there was any evil in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then the whole tree was evil and needed to be cut down. Now that's a mixture of metaphors, a mixture of analogies and symbolism, but is it valid? Does one necessarily equate to the other? These are questions we need to ask. Well, I guess we need to ask it before the days of unleavened bread, don't we? Now, in the Bible, leaven is only mentioned as evil for seven days. That's all. The rest of the Bible, I don't remember the exact reference now, but the rest of the time of the year, leavening is mentioned as a good thing. I don't remember the reference immediately. I'd have to look it up again. But leaven is mentioned in a good light. It's just bad during that period of time. Well, what about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Is it bad all the time, or was it just bad that one day? (laughs) Or was it really bad that day? Let's look around at the world we live in today. I think it's safe to say that there is much evil. There's not a lot of good amongst and amidst mankind today. Uh, We see wars, famine, pestilence, horrible deaths and earthquakes, homicides, suicides, all kinds of sides that are occurring all around us. And it makes for tears, for sorrow, for suffering. We see abuse of alcohol, abuse of drugs, abuse of all kinds of things. And we see a lot of sorrow and sickness and death around us. Many here have sicknesses, illnesses, problems that are very, very difficult. Pain, misery, agony, feel lousy, whatever. The more people we have, it seems the more sirens we hear. Sirens of the night don't sound good, do they? That means somebody's dead or dying. It means somebody's speeding, or it means that somebody's wrecked a car and are lying bleeding by the roadside, perhaps, and somebody's in a hurry to go try to help them. Sirens represent police, ambulances, fire trucks, somebody's house may be burning. And the more people we have, it seems, the more sirens we have. In other words, the more people there are, the more grief, misery, pain, and suffering there is. It grows as population grows. And it seems the world is getting to be a more perilous place day by day. We have the specter of nuclear weapons and all kinds of technical weapons that are being devised that can harm and hurt and kill en masse. And in fact, we are coming to the time that Matthew 24 talks about in verse 22 that unless man was intervened with, there would no flesh be saved alive. Now, was that happy? Something happened, didn't it? And it's been happening ever since the Garden of Eden. Mankind got so bad within a thousand years that God just wiped them all out but eight. And those started the bad process all over again. And it wasn't long until on the plain of Shinar, there was a tower built that would reach to God, or reach to the heavens, 
and was there to supplant and do away with God. So, this has been and will be as we hasten toward that fulfillment of Matthew twenty four twenty two, and mankind is about to destroy himself. Nobody's happy. Remember that song that came out some years ago, Don't Worry, Be Happy? You know, that, got, that caught on so quickly and was sold a lot of records and was spread far and wide. And yet today, when was it written? 15, 20, 25 years ago? I don't remember. But it's quoted today. In fact, I just did, didn't I? Don't worry, be happy. We just completed a series on fear. And I, in essence, if you want to sum it up all those long sermons, don't worry, be happy. Four words pretty well took care of the series. Why did I spend so long? Why does a song like that become popular? Because it strikes a nerve. Because it's an emotional thing that we all relate to. I wish I could quit worrying and truly be happy. But most people aren't, and that's why it strikes a chord inside them. Have a nice day. It caught on because that sounds good. And then it became almost nauseous to people hearing it over and over and over. But things like that do catch on. So, really, all we want, basically, all of us, is to be happy. Right? We don't want to be sad. We don't want to be mad, angry, frustrated, impatient. We want to be happy, peaceful. We want contentment, health, wealth. Wealth, just to us, symbolizes the capacity to possess or buy what we desire. And then you have people who are very wealthy and buy anything they want, and they're still unhappy. Did you realize that among wealthy people, believe it or not, there's still homicide and suicide and divorce and abortion and drug abuse and alcohol abuse and all kinds of unhappy, miserable rich people? It almost seems the more wealth they have, the unhappier they get. And yet people equate happiness with wealth. If I could just have a bunch of money... I'd be happy. Not necessarily. That isn't what brings it. Happiness is what? Happiness is a state of the mind. It's not a state of wealth or health. It's not a state of the union, believe it or not. Some people think if they just lived in this state, they would be happy. But whatever state it is, I can go there and I can find a lot of unhappy people. Very few people today on this earth have attained a state of happiness. Why? What's wrong? That's what they all want, what they're all striving after, and yet it seems like very few ever achieve it. What are we, a bunch of losers? Can we learn anything about this beginning in the book of Genesis? Are there any rooted answers there, or answers rooted there? Let's begin there, see what we can learn. You know, we can 
philosophize about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life and what we think it might mean. But if it is only a philosophy, if it's only a technical explanation of symbolism, what does that gain us except being proud of the fact that we are intellectually smart enough to figure out what that might symbolize? Is there a problem that arises here, and is there a solution to it that means something to you and me? If it doesn't mean anything to us, if it doesn't heal some emotion and some problems and lead to happiness, then what good is knowledge? There are a lot of people with a lot of knowledge who are very unhappy, whether it's scientific knowledge, biblical knowledge, whatever kind of knowledge. Let's go back to Genesis 1. We're very familiar here. Don't tune out just because we're going to Genesis 1. We've been there many times, and, and you can read it. And Well, I know that. Why go back there? Well, I don't think we know all of it yet. And any time we, as I said last week, discuss a major point of doctrine, it seems that its Genesis is in Genesis. It's where you have to go to begin to understand the foundational purpose, reasoning, and logic of God. Because it's all rooted right here. Now, we know the story, and I won't go back through it. At this point, it isn't uh, germane to the situation, but the creation has started here in chapter 1. God describes the things He made on the different days. And He looked around, He created man, too. And when He got done, verse 31, it says, And God saw everything that He had made. Now, he had made the heavens and the earth, the moon, the stars, the trees, the plants, the flowers, the animals, mankind. He had made the Garden of Eden, and he had made the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life. And he said that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, there are those who say, well, it was very good except for one thing, and that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was bad. That was evil. Is that the case? Is there an exception? Did he make all that in the first seven days? Yes. This is a summary in Genesis 1. And then he goes back in chapter 2 and 3 and discusses in more detail some of the things that he had done in the first seven days. He didn't make Adam three different times, but once he had done it during the first week, he went back and added detail to that and showed us more about what it was that he had done. So, the garden, the trees, everything had been done in the first week. And it was very good. Now, are we going to find something that changes that? I don't think so. Chapter 2, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and God rested after He had done that work on the seventh day, and blessed the seventh day, and sanctified it, because that in it He had rested from all His work which God created and made. 
So the Sabbath was made as the last act of creation on the seventh day. Now that was a memorial of creation. It was a day in which he rested and contemplated his creation. And ironically, it's the fourth of ten commandments he later codified and gave through Moses. But the Sabbath preceded that codifying at Mount Sinai, did it not? It was already there and had been a long time before Moses was born. So we find that at least one element of the Ten Commandments is already here, isn't it? Before we even get into man's history... So he says, these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the eternal God made the earth and the heavens. Is that a statement there that says that it was all done then, as Kent Hovind would say, or that it had been done billions of years ago, as other scientists and people say? I don't know, that's in a realm to some degree of speculation. But it talks about the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the eternal God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. God fixed it where everything took care of itself, basically. And then he says that he had formed man of the dust of the ground, And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So mankind was activated. He was formed, but the first gift to man from God was activation, was life, was the breath of life. He became a living soul. So life, the physical life that we have today, is a gift of God to us. There was no relationship between God and man whatsoever until he breathed the breath of life in and the brain, the eyes came on. Then, before then, he was dust, dirt, clay, and he was molded and shaped and made and was just a clay model like Modeling agencies use today to begin to fabricate clothes. They use a a foreign, well, they're plastic now. They used to be clay. Had no organs, just clay. And then God, however He acts, however He is capable of doing, changed it to things that work and activated it so they did work inside. And he gave us life. Now, where did that life go? What did it do? We won't go into the Garden of Eden here. Those other papers did quite well, and I don't want to go back over that. It was very good information, I think. Uh, I don't think they knew where Jerusalem was, but I still think it had to do with Jerusalem and all of those factors in there put on the right Jerusalem do mean something indeed, and I think that that is correct that the Garden of Eden was in the environs of Jerusalem. Verse 15, And the eternal God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So he gave him a job. 
Gave him life, gave him breath, gave him opportunity, then he gave him a job. And the eternal God commanded. Command is a direction, it's an instruction. It is stronger than just saying, I would like that you would do this. It was a command. It meant business. It wasn't a suggestion. Here's the command. Saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now, he had just given him a gift of life. And he said, I'll remove that gift if you eat of this one tree. Now, he did not tell him that he could not eat of the tree of life. He had access to it, in other words. There was a possibility that he could have eaten of the tree of life and not only lived as a human being, but have lived forever because the tree of life represents eternal life. And we will prove that uh, before we're done. Why was that a possibility? Because man was in a perfect state. He could have eaten of that tree, and then lived a life in total good, in peace, in happiness, in enjoyment, with no bad emotions whatsoever. No guilt, no shame, no frustration, no temptation. He didn't have those things. Life was good. Life was happy. Life was joyous. There was no evil around at least that was yet visible. There was some lurking, and it will show up shortly. So eating of that tree would produce death. Now on the surface, that might appear to make that an evil tree because the fruit was death. But is that the correct answer? We shall see. Then he told him it wasn't good that he lived alone. He didn't know that yet, but he found out pretty quickly that it was not good to live alone. It was good to live with somebody, and she needed to be different than he was. So he called her woman because she was taken from man. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So they were in a good state, husband and wife together. They had no clothes. They had never heard of clothes. They didn't know what clothes were. And they were not ashamed or embarrassed. They didn't feel funny about that state. Even though they were different, they still were comfortable together. There was no guilt involved. They were happy. He was happy with her, and she was happy with him, and everything was good. There were no in-laws, no problems of any kind. Enter evil. Everything was good, okay? Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the eternal God had made. And of course the reference is to Satan, who was the snake in the grass. Now notice 
the, the first characteristic of him that is mentioned, he was very subtle. He was not the kind that would just throw it in your face. He was not the kind who was openly and outwardly evil. His evil was a very subtle thing, hard to discern from truth. Now, in this life, when we see someone who is doing horrible, evil things, it's not too hard to recognize that, is it? They're serial killers or something, and it can be shown to be. That evil is very obvious. Now, my grandmother was one of the sweetest, kindest people that I ever knew. Well, both of them really were, but especially the one who was just the sweetest Protestant I ever met, I think. She'd have somebody else swat the flies, almost. Tender, kind, gentle, loving. I never heard her say anything evil about anybody or put anybody down. She was always chipper and upbeat and happy and saw the best in everybody and everything. Just one of the kindest, gentlest, sweetest, tender people you could ever imagine. You've probably known someone like that. But she was full of self-righteousness, full of thinking she was good. She did not have the Spirit of God because God says He gives His Spirit to them that obey. Obey what? What is it that you obey or disobey? There's got to be a standard, isn't there? God does not give His Spirit except to those who obey. Well, I can tell you the first one we read about back here, the Sabbath, the first law that's mentioned, she broke every week. She went to church on Sunday. She did not know God. She did not have any relationship with God. She was like the Israelites in ancient Egypt who said, Which God? When she went to the Methodist church, there was this little scarecrow on the back wall hanging on a stake with long hair, and he looked kind of girly. And that was the God she worshipped. She didn't know anything different. Now I think she's going to be in a resurrection. I think she's going to learn about the true God. She's going to learn a lot of things that she did not know. So I'm not saying my grandmother was bad, but there was a lot of evil in her that she did not even recognize. A lot of self-centeredness, a lot of self-righteousness. But she appeared as an angel of light. And yet she had a satanic religion. Now that's harder for us to grasp, isn't it? You're fighting with that right now in your mind as I say those things about her. How could she be so sweet and yet you're saying she's worshiping the devil? Well, you've been in the church long enough. You probably have that kind of sorted out by now without too much explanation. But if she was Al Capone, you wouldn't have too much trouble figuring it out. Now, that's what subtlety does. That which is evil can appear good. We know Satan is evil, and yet his angels appear, or, or his emissaries, his angels appear as angels of light. So, the characteristic that Satan was going to use here is he is introduced. He has a lot of characteristics, bad ones. But the one God mentions here is subtlety. 
Because these people had already established a relationship with God. And it was a good relationship. He came to the garden. He talked with them. He visited with them. They were close. Wonderful relationship Adam and Eve had with God in the beginning. So, in order to destroy that relationship, subtlety was required. And that he had a lot of. We have to be very careful. So how did he approach it? The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which eternal God had made. And he said to the woman, why did he approach the woman? Women, in some respects, are more emotional than men in their reactions. Uh, Men are very emotional too, even though they act like wooden Indians sometimes. Is that a racial epithet about Indians? No. Uh, Sometimes they're quiet. That's all it's about. But sometimes they can be turned by emotion in ways that a man would not be. So this isn't a commentary on why women are worse than men, because they aren't. But that's where Satan attacked, because he felt that that was the place that he might have the influence best, the quickest. And he knew good and well that she had a big influence on Adam. As one lady said, you may be the head, but I'm the neck. I can turn your head any way I want. And women do have a great deal of capacity there. It's easier sometimes for a woman to turn a man's head than it is for a man to turn a woman's head. I guess. I don't know. We're philosophizing here. It doesn't matter. God made them both, and they're wonderful. So let's leave it at that rather than get into a a battle of the sexes. But in any case, he approached her first. He said to the woman, uh, Yes, has God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So he asked her a question that demands a response. He didn't just come to her and say, God said you're not supposed to eat of that tree. He asked her something that required her to answer him. A response was it's the kind of question. Salesmen are taught that. Make a closing statement. Ask a question. You don't ask them, do you want one or not? You ask them, would you like the red one or the white one? So it's an either-or choice he throws at you. You have to override his used car approach and say, I don't want either one, which is not what he was after. So he uses that kind of psychology. Did God say that? The woman said to the serpent, I better explain to you what God said, because it's obvious you don't know. Did God say that? Well, okay, here's what he said. The woman said said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. She's just quoting back what God had said. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now that sounds like a pretty bad thing, doesn't it? And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. Oh, first contradiction. What? What are you saying? God said we would, and now you're telling me we won't. What's the deal here? It raised a question in her mind. 
She did not immediately run to God and ask Him to answer the question. She kept listening to the one who had a different answer. For God does know. So now he's quoting God as an authority. So this is pretty subtle, isn't it? He says, I'm contradicting God. You won't surely die. But God is an authority after all. So, and then he continues. God does know that in the day you eat, there, the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So he's telling them, if you eat of that tree... You're not going to die, but you're going to be more like God. He's appealing to her sense of spirituality, her sense of logic, and opening a new truth to her. You're going to be more like God if you eat of this tree. Well, I want to be more like God. I like God. So she listened. You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, that is a true statement. God knows the difference between good and evil. And Adam and Eve were about to learn the difference between good and evil. Were they not? Satan was telling the truth. Except about the dying part. You can overlook that because then he got into new truth and that got their ears tingling. And we all like new truth. So she kind of forgot what he said about dying and said, I want to hear this new truth. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it looked good, and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. Now, Satan had told her it's going to make you wise. And she looked at it and said, man, it looks good. So I think I'll have some of that. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. So the neck turned the head, didn't it? And the eyes of them both were opened. Open to a different kind of knowledge or understanding, were they not? Their eyes were already open. I mean, she'd already looked at the tree. She'd looked at the serpent. So physically her eyes were open, but suddenly there was something that they saw that they had not seen before. What was it? They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now up to that point they were blissfully unaware that they were naked. There was no shame. There was no sense of needing to cover up or any such thing. They were perfectly happy that way. But when they ate of that, they suddenly looked, we're naked. Well, this isn't good. We should go hide. We should make something to cover up with. So the feeling of guilt of transgression, of frustration suddenly came upon them. They had never had a bad emotion in their lives, however short or long at that point. No grief, no sorrow, no tears, no unhappiness. 
And suddenly, a sense of unhappiness overcame them, just like that. They weren't happy anymore. They were afraid and timid and scared and ashamed. That's not, those aren't good feelings, are they? We don't like those feelings. And they heard the voice of the eternal God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the eternal God among the trees of the garden. So they ran back in the bushes and hid from God. They hadn't had that feeling before. They had had a very close relationship with God. They talked. They walked together. They were friends. Very close. There was no question about the relationship. Now, anytime we have a human relationship, we always have questions, don't we? Can I trust? Will this one say? Will this one divulge? Will this one hurt me? Will this one steal from me? Will this one stab me in the back? Can I trust them completely? And we've had enough experience that we're a little slow to put our hand on the stove sometimes because we know that everything doesn't always work right. In other words, we as human beings have relationship problems. Now they immediately had a relationship problem with God that had never existed before. There was total confidence, utmost trust, just a wonderful, nice feeling of being together. Happy as clams at high tide. They smile clear back to here, if you don't understand the expression. Happy as you can be. We have expressions, happy as a lark. I don't know how happy that is. Ask a couple of people we have here named that. I don't know how happy. But it doesn't matter what your name is. You're not always completely happy, are you? What happened? So the relationship with God was suddenly in trouble. When you hide from somebody, there's a problem. Bad emotions, bad vibes, bad feelings had occurred. The eternal God called Adam and said to him, Where are you? He didn't say, Where are you, my friend? Because your friends, real friends, don't hide from you, do they? They weren't really friends anymore. And he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. He had never experienced that before. He, was not, he wasn't afraid of God. Why do dogs get afraid? Because you kick them, because you hit them. And they begin to cower, and then they become aggressive because they're afraid. And Adam and Eve were afraid because something had gone wrong with the relationship. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. We talk about sometimes being naked before God and man is the expression that is used. Well... God had made them. God had designed every piece and part on them. He didn't have a problem with that. He looked at it and said, that's good. She is too. He is too. Everything's good. I made it. I did a good job. Very good, in fact. But suddenly, in their minds, he must not have thought the way they were shaped and made was good. 
because they were afraid being naked. It was a state of the mind, right? It was an emotional reaction. And he said, who told you you were naked? Yesterday you didn't say anything about it. You didn't know it. What does naked mean anyway? The word wasn't in the dictionary. You could have looked it up in Webster's and it wouldn't have been there. It was added later. It was added the day Satan showed up and suddenly there was a new term coined. Naked. Well, what is it? It means we don't have any clothes. They knew how to define it, but they hadn't known it before. So who told you about that word? And why do you think it's a bad word? And I hid myself. Have you eaten of the tree whereof I commanded you that you should not eat? God knew why they had these feelings now. Well, he'd seen it all. He understood. But he had to put it to them like you would to a child. Who told you? Now, the relationship with God is on the rocks, right? We, we got trouble here in River City or in the Garden of Eden. Now what's going to go next? God confronted him, said, who told you? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Now, there's accusation here. If you hadn't given me that woman, I wouldn't be in trouble here. <laughs> so he blamed her. Now, how's that going to set with her? Is she going to like that? What do you mean, telling me? Telling me you, you was the only one that ate it too. Well, you gave it to me first. You ate it first. I see trouble brewing real fast here. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. You're wrong. No, you're wrong. You ever heard that in your house? Nah. The woman gave it to me and it was your fault because you gave her to me. And I did eat it. He finally admitted it, but it's her fault and it's your fault. And the eternal God said to the woman, well, if that be the case, you, you hear your husband? He just accused you of doing this. What about you? What's, what's your take here? Do you ever get with... Some of your kids, he did it, she did it, he did it, she did it. They blame each other. So you have the great interrogation. Who did it? And if you can't find out who did it, you just paddle them all. He said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat it. Well, it's the devil's fault. Everybody's got to find somebody to blame. The eternal God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. So God used the snake or serpent as a symbol of Satan. He isn't shaped like a snake, but a snake is a symbol. Of Satan. And some snakes will bite you and they have evil toxins and will kill you with that poison. 
So it's a fitting symbol that was used. Now, because of what had happened, God had said, you can do this, but don't do that. And they had done the one thing he said, don't do. There were repercussions. There were emotional repercussions. There were automatic penalties, if you will. Had God pronounced a curse upon them at that point? Had He told them that from now on you're going to have sorrow and trouble and difficulty and grief and pain and shame and guilt? No. God was not actively there. He was elsewhere over here. He was watching, but He was not there with them. And the guilt and the shame and the frustration and all those evil, bad, negative emotions came on them by nature. Naturally. They were automatic penalties, if you will. Now, on top of that, God added specific penalties. A lot of things you do, you have an automatic penalty. You jump off a building. God doesn't say, I'm going to chasten you right now as you fall. And when you hit the ground, you're going to die. He doesn't have to do that. You fall off the building or jump off the building, it's already set. It's automatic. You're going to die. That's all there is to it. It's a tall one. But he told them there would be specific penalties as well on top of that. When you commit an infraction, when you sin, is there an automatic penalty? Does God have to throw you in the lake of fire before you begin to feel the effect of your sin? No. When you sin, in thought or in deed, you automatically begin to feel guilty and ashamed and nervous. You have all kinds of bad emotions that begin to occur just from the fact of what you thought or did. And you get uncomfortable and miserable. And your happiness flees. And then God says, if you keep doing that, you're going to suffer eternal death. In other words, you have automatic penalties when you do certain things. And then God says, I'm going to add to that an even greater penalty. If it was not something that caused your death at the moment. So, here are the specific curses. Talk to the devil. And he said, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, mankind and Satan would become combatants for the future, or combatants. There would be trouble. There would be a fight. Difficulties. And to Adam, he said, Because you have hearkened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face shall you eat bread till you return to the ground 
For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust shall you return. You're going to have hard times, difficulty, misery, frustration, a tough life. And don't we have expressions about, about like this? Life is tough and then you die, we say. Well, it's true. That's why we say it. That's why we have those expressions. Is because what God said here is true to this day. It's automatic. Did I look? Did I read on down? Oh, let's see. I, I forgot about the woman here, didn't I? Oh, well. Now let's go ahead and read it too. Verse 16. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head and, and shall bruise your heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In sorrow shall you bring forth children, and your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. In other words, your desires will be subject to your husband, and he shall rule over you. In other words, you're going to be like chattel or cattle to mankind. And that has been true throughout most of the history of mankind. When women have been mistreated and abused, they are not as strong physically, and men have ruled over them, misused and abused them. That's just the way it's been. Now, there have been moments in time where women have had a liberation, and right now they think that they have been delivered from the rule of man. But even yet in our society, they are trodden down, they are still beat, they are still abused, they are misused, they are made sex objects, they are run down, even though they think that they are becoming happy by being emancipated. But they aren't. They still have a high level of frustration and unhappiness, just as men do. Has emancipation solved all women's problems? No. They're on Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz and Dr. Whoever. All day long on the television, you can probably find somebody is having troubles and somebody trying to fix it. So the problems haven't been solved, have they? Still have difficulty. Now, God has since this time given opportunity here and there to help heal the breach, to solve the problems and to renew the relationships with God and man. And he has done that throughout the history of man, given us opportunity to fix things. And what has been our response? We always run to the devil. We always run to sin. We always run to hiding from God. Don't we? We always run to disobeying God, to thinking we have a better way than His way. That's all Adam and Eve did. Satan said, you know, there is a better way. Oh yeah? I like better ways. Okay, let's try it. 
uh-oh, that didn't work out so hot. Now, has this changed? Don't you always find a better way than that one which God puts in front of you? We have more ways of getting around what God says than you can shake a stick at. Mankind has ever since this fateful day. Every time he gives us an opportunity to do better, we always say, yes, I'll do that, and then we turn around and run the other direction, almost invariably. So this was a watershed. This was a sea change. This was a totally different deal now than had been. Now, let's look at this. Verse uh, 17 of chapter 2. But of the tree of the knowledge of good you shall not eat. Before they ate from that tree, did they have a knowledge of good? That's all they knew, isn't it? Didn't they know good? Isn't the first half of this already a done deal? They were happy. They were joyful. They were content. They were at peace. They had no evil, bad, negative emotions, whatever. They already had a knowledge of good. It was the tree of the knowledge of good first. Now, is that bad? It wasn't bad at all, was it? That was good. Good life. Good wife. Good husband. Good God. We use that expression today when things go bad. As a curse word, as an epithet. No, everything was good. So the tree of the knowledge of good was not an evil tree. So far, was it? Hasn't been anything negative so far about this tree. The tree of the knowledge of good. Now, when does evil enter the picture? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, a contrast must have occurred. Something happened when they ate of that tree because their eyes were open. Now they saw something they didn't ever see before. Before they had seen only good and they knew no bad. So now when they ate of that, they suddenly saw bad. They saw the difference between good and bad, if you will. That's what suddenly became apparent. They already knew good, so they didn't learn from eating that good. They already knew that. It was the knowledge of the difference between good and evil. They sinned. What do you mean they sinned? There was no law. You sure about that? Doesn't Paul say where there is no law, there is no sin or no transgression? Yes, he does. 
So therefore, if they sinned, then there must have been a law of some kind there. So, maybe here entered the law in their consciousness. Well, was the law bad? Some people say it is. In fact, most of the whole so-called Christian people on earth believe that the law is bad. Now, Paul said it was holy and just and good, so I don't know, you know, how do they get this? But they say the law is bad. And they equate the law with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and therefore, since the law is bad, that tree is bad. Now, is the law bad? Let's philosophize for a moment. We'll go to the Scriptures and see. Is the law of and by itself bad? Now, if the law says don't kill, is it good to kill or not to kill? Well, killing's bad, especially if you're the one being killed. And it's bad to the one who does the killing, because then it messes their emotions up messes their life up, and they may go to jail, and they may go to the chair. So it wasn't good for anybody. But was it the law that was bad, the law that said you shouldn't kill? No, that law isn't a bad law. That's a pretty good law, isn't it? It keeps you from getting murdered. What's wrong with that? It's only bad if you break it. If you break it, the bad stuff starts. So God had given some instruction, a command, if you will, and it said, don't do that or you're suddenly going to know about evil. You already knew good. You eat that, you're going to learn evil. Somebody says, well, the law of the land is you shall not kill. Well, that sounds good. But the minute you kill, suddenly you know evil. So it isn't the law then that is bad, is it? It's the breaking of it that's bad. The law doesn't kill you. The penalty of the law kills you. The result of breaking the law is what kills you. It isn't the law itself. you're driving 100 miles an hour, and the law says you're supposed to be going 65, there may be a penalty. For what? Because the law is bad? No, the law might be pretty reasonable. You should drive no more than 65. It might be a pretty good law. You know, put it in a school zone and don't go more than 65. No, no, that's out on the highway. Is the law bad? No, it's probably a good law. Now, if you drive a hundred, they may give you a penalty for breaking the law. Now, it may be one that they write in the form of a fine, or the penalty might be you run into a telephone at a pole at a hundred miles an hour, and the law takes care of the penalty itself. But it wasn't the law that was bad. It was your bad conduct. 
And here is where Protestantism goes way off. They think that because if you break something, it kills you, that it's bad. No, it's not. If you keep it, you're happy. When do you get upset with somebody? Law says don't lie. You don't get upset with them as long as they tell you the truth, do you? When do you get upset? When they lie to you. That's when you get upset. It's the penalty of the lie that's the problem, not the law. People throw out the baby with the bathwater. They think because you break the law and something bad happens, the law must be bad. Throw it away. Now that seems stupid, doesn't it? Is that logical? The baby's dirty. Throw out the bathwater. Leave the baby in there. He smells just like the bathwater. Out with them both. Doesn't make any sense or logic at all. But, that's what very highly intelligent scholars of theology do. Why? Because they don't want to be told what to do. That is against human nature. There is nobody who walks the earth who likes to be told what to do. In fact, we have an expression like that, do we not? Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Who does he think he is? I'll do what I want to. I'm a free free moral agent American. Land of the free and home of the brave. Which has become the land of the cowards and the home of the slaves. But we think we're free. They lost a lot of freedom, didn't they? Why is the law of God called the perfect law of liberty? In James. It's called the law of liberty because if you keep it, it liberates you from the penalty of breaking it. If you break it, you have what? Shame, disgust, self-pity, frustration, all kinds of negative emotions when you break it. And when you keep it, You're free to be happy. Free to be at liberty. See, the law produces good as long as you keep it. The minute you break it, it produces harm and evil and negativity. That was the difference in Adam and Eve's life. It had been good. They had knowledge of good. It was just that contrast between good and evil that suddenly came upon them. Now, Satan had said, you'll be like God. Now, is it bad to be like God? What did God himself say about that? He said, if they eat of that, then they will be as one of us, the Father, the Son, The angels? God knows the difference between good and evil, doesn't He? Yes, He does. Is that bad? That's not bad. God's good. He understands the difference. And they did become more like God in that sense when they partook of that tree. 
They then had the knowledge of good and evil, but the problem is they had sinned and had partaken of the evil thing because God had said, don't do that. So what did they do? They disobeyed what their best friend told them. They did just the opposite. And that's when the lights came on. There had been total trust up to that point. Now is it... Is knowing the difference between good and evil a bad thing? Now here, it appears to be bad, doesn't it? Knowing the difference between good and evil suddenly created all kinds of problems. But let's just look at it from this standpoint. Is knowing the difference between good and bad, or good and evil, a bad thing? I don't think you think so. You spend a lot of time with your children trying to tell them and teach them what is good and what is bad behavior. You do it with your dog or your cat. They need to know what is good conduct and bad conduct. Doesn't do much good with cats, but the dog can learn. We spend a lot of time on good and evil, don't we? So, is it a good thing? Well, I think so. Would you just assume your children never learn the difference between good and evil? Just, ah, just let them do evil. It don't matter. They'll learn. No, you don't approach it that way. You spend a lot of time and energy on it. Because you don't believe in your heart that the difference between good and evil is a bad thing. Or that the knowledge, excuse me, of the difference between bad, good and evil is a bad thing. And it's not. Knowing good and doing good was great. Learning evil and doing evil produced bad. It entered through Adam and Eve and it remains to this day, doesn't it? Do we still know evil? Do we still do evil? Knowing something is evil doesn't hurt you. Knowing murder is evil doesn't hurt you. It's an evil thing. Knowing it doesn't hurt you. What hurts you? murder. That hurts you. Knowing what is good and what is bad doesn't hurt you. It's doing it that hurts you. In other words, all the laws, all the commandments, all the instructions that God gives are good. The only time they're bad is when you go against them. But the whole Christian world wants to throw that concept out and say, well, it's all evil, throw it away. Don't get near the law. It's a bad tree. Bad law. Go away law. Alright? So, let's just do away with the law. Now what have we got? If I like, don't like you, I can shoot you. And nobody will care. Because it's not against the law. It's fine. You don't like my brother? Well, shoot him. Who cares? Any law. Throw it out. What do you got? Paul said even the Gentiles who don't know God or know the law of God know that they should ought to have rules. You shouldn't kill, steal, and lie in their society. They don't even need the law of God to figure that out. 
They just know that in their society they need certain rules or everything's chaos. Paul is reasoning for the law there, isn't he? Not against it. Have you ever noticed that any argument about whether the law is good or bad or done away with starts in the writings of Paul and ends in the writings of Paul? Does anyone ever start an argument about whether the law is done away with things Christ said, things John said, Peter said, James said? I've never heard it. Now, they might go to, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it, and say, well, he filled it plumb up, and therefore it isn't any good anymore. Kind of weird, but some people can stretch it that far. But most arguments, by and large, begin and end in Paul. And Peter even said, Paul wrote many things hard to be understood. Peter would read something Paul wrote and say, what in the world is that about? I don't get it. Hard to understand. I think I'll go read James or Luke. Because he had trouble with Paul. Now, does that tell us somehow that some of the things Paul wrote might, could lead you astray, might be difficult, might be hard to understand? If that is the case, why don't we set Paul aside for a moment and read the rest of the Bible, and see what everybody else says, and then study Paul in the light of everything else. Does that make sense? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. 2 Timothy 3.16. And it says it's good for four things there. He says, Thy word is truth. John 17.17. 17. He said, live by every word of God. Matthew 4, 4, Luke 4, 4, and Deuteronomy 8, 3. Some people live only, live only and die only by Paul. And Peter already said, that's questionable. If you go there, watch where you step. Is what Paul, or Peter said about Paul's writings. Many things hard to understand. So maybe then you're supposed to go to everything else God wrote through other people that is clear, concise, makes sense, direct statements, and realize that must be the words of God and what God intends, and then you're prepared to go and study the things Paul wrote that are sometimes head-scratchers. Because you know they have to fit within the mold of everything else that is written. But if you take Paul by himself, you can get confused. And the whole Christian world has done just that. If you want an argument about law and grace, or law or grace, or any about, anything about that, anytime that subject comes up, where do people head? Boy, they'll grab that Bible, they'll whip her open to somewhere in Paul, won't they? Yep, that's where they go.
One of the characteristics of Adam and Eve's lives after God pronounced those curses or penalties upon them was what? Now, they had had an easy life before then, hadn't they? The only thing they had to do was just dress and keep the garden. It was watered properly. It was fertilized just right. Everything was good. They just needed to keep it trimmed up and looking nice. And if a branch maybe died, they could take it away so the garden looked good. That's all they had to do. It wasn't a big deal. And life was good. The sun shone and the birdies sang. And they had no negative emotions and everything was just hunky-dory. When they said good morning, they meant it. Today, somebody says good morning and you might hear good morning back or you might say, hear what's good about it. Haven't had my coffee yet. Day's bad and it's getting worse. Seems like a lot of people eat a live toad first thing in the morning. That kind of sets the tone for the day. No, their life was perfect. Couldn't have asked for anything more. They had the best mate, both of them, on earth. No problems anywhere. Perfect. Life was good. And then suddenly, life was tough. Life was hard. The ground got hard. The animals got nasty and mean. And thorns and briars and thistles grew. And you had to work hard by the sweat of your brow to produce anything. Then you had your husband telling you everything to do, for crying out loud. And he held it over her head. You're the one that did it first. You're the one that listened to the devil. You do what I say or I'll knock your block off. There's still a lot of cavemen like that today, aren't there? There's some cave women like that that threaten to knock his off today. <laughs> you know, it swings both ways. But generally speaking, and in, well, completely speaking, life has become very difficult. Life is tough and then you die. True saying. Now, life, as God created it, very good, should be easy. It has not been easy. Now, the Protestant world flips something around and suddenly says life should be easy. All you have to do is accept the Lord, live under the good graces of God, and there's no temptation, there's no toughness, there's no difficulty involved in a Christian life anymore. Is that correct? And is that a good philosophy? Does God intend Christianity today to be easy? Or is it a tough road to hoe? Which philosophy do you subscribe to? Now, is everything happy, happy, joy, joy in Protestantism? Now, that's their philosophy. Everything's good. We're all forgiven. All we have to do is have the Lord Jesus in our heart, and everything's fine. We're all forgiven. Everything's rosy between the Lord and me. But then in the Protestant world, Methodist, Baptist, 
and in the Catholic world, and in every world on earth, we have murder and lying and cheating and stealing and drunkenness and dope heads and every problem known to man, don't we? Has life suddenly become easy? Now, maybe your philosophy of life and thinking everything is good between me and Jesus, he's my friend. You can make that equation if you think like a Protestant. Does God say that, or did Christ say, I like the guy that just looks up and smiles and says, everything's hunky-dory between you and me, Lord. You're my best friend and I'm your best friend and I know you come and sit on my shoulder and tell me things to do and everything's happy between us. Why did God say, why did Christ say when he was here, that those who look up and think they're righteous and everything's A-OK, he doesn't much listen to, but he listens to the one that says, on his knees with his head bowed, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Now, if you feel like a sinner, if you feel guilty, If you feel frustrated over the way you are and the way you react and the things you say and do, are you happy? Is life easy? No, you're carrying a burden. Did he say, my way is going to be free and easy? And you don't have to worry, you don't have to struggle, you don't have to fight. Because it's all in the grace of God and you're automatically forgiven and everything's going to be all right. Is that what he said? No. What did he say? Through much tribulation. What is tribulation? Tribulation is turmoil. Have you ever been in the waves of the ocean as they came crashing in? That's tribulation. That's being jerked every direction in your head buried in the sand. You're pushed and pulled by the forces of that water and by gravity and by the sand. It's turmoil. Tribulation is not something we look forward to. It could be the great tribulation that's about to come, which is going to be great turmoil and danger and problems. He said, through much tribulation, you will have problems difficulties, life will still be hard. It will not be easy. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but God will ultimately deliver them out of them all. Psalm thirty-four, nineteen. What does he say? Hard, narrow, ruddy, deep is the way that leads to life, but broad and easy is the way to destruction. So, the Protestant idea of you don't have to fight, you don't have to struggle, is the broad and easy way, and it leads to where? Destruction. That philosophy is wrong. Why did Paul say, O wretched man that I am, did he... The one who supposedly did away with the law say life now as a Protestant is easy. There'll be no problems. Me and God got it together. Everything's fine with me and God. And there's a song out about that recently. 
Me and God, we got it all together somehow. I heard it a time or two. No. Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. Woe is me, O wretched man that I am. That was the struggle he had every day. He said himself, I die daily. Paul said, I crucify the flesh. You know what crucifixion does? It hurts. Killing hurts. Now, if by any stretch of the imagination you come up with the idea that everything's good between me and God and I don't have any problems, I don't have to struggle, life is easy, you're reading the wrong Bible somehow. Is it easy to face persecution? Is it easy to face martyrdom? Like the disciples, apostles had to do? What is easy? Lying, cheating, stealing, adultery, fornication, murder. Those things come easy. What's hard? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Those things don't come easy. Well, we have the Holy Spirit. That ought to just come easy. I just have love in my heart all the time. Blithering idiot. No, you don't. Maybe you've self-deceived yourself to the place. You think that that's, life's just all full of roses and no thorns. Give me a break. Somebody that lives that way and got all this Protestant love in their heart, I'll just bet you if they'll tell the truth, they still get frustrated, they still get impatient in traffic, they still get upset with their mate, they still have bad days, life is not easy, can't find a job, can't find a good job, can't find a good boss. Might be single, can't find a good mate. Life's still pretty tough, isn't it? It isn't easy. Hard. I don't care what you think of yourself. They're going to be Christians, go into the Great Tribulation. People that God called out of this world and gave His truth, who have chosen to be lackadaisical about it, and He's going to heat them up. Those cool, lukewarm Christians are going to be hot Christians or cold, stiff, and dead is what they're going to be. And life is not going to be easy. It's going to be very, very hard. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. I've got just a few minutes left here. And I want to throw a couple of scriptures on the end of this, and we'll have to stop. But 1 Corinthians 15, here we are going to Paul, but not to try to do away with the law. Here, I want to pick it up in about uh, verse 19. 
Paul says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Now, is that a statement that Christian life is easy? He says, of a Christian, walking, breathing, as a physical human being on the earth, trying to be like God, that of all the people on the earth, if there isn't something beyond this life, we are of all the people that walk and breathe the most miserable. Why? Because we're trying to do what is good and right, and that goes against everything in us. We want to do that which is evil and wrong because it is fun, we think, till we pay the penalties. Most of the fun stuff is the stuff that God says don't do, it seems. The carnal mind is enmity against God. The human, normal, natural mind hates the ways of God and wants to do what it wants to do, which appears to make it happy at the moment. And it might be, from a physical standpoint, fun. I suppose reaching up and eating that piece of fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was fun at the moment, wasn't it? That looks pretty good. I think I'll have some of that. That looks like that would be a good thing to do. And then the penalty hit. There are a lot of things that look like fun to you do them, and then you, oh no, what have I done? And then you are of all men most miserable because you feel guilty, you feel frustrated, and all kinds of negative emotions come with it. So, what Paul is saying here is it's a struggle, people. It's hard, it's difficult, it's not easy to be a Christian. Now, that doesn't fit with the theology where you twist some things that Paul said and say life ought to be easy. I'm, in gra- I'm under grace and everything's happy. No problems. I don't have to struggle. Yes, you do. If you're not struggling, you're not headed toward life. To him that overcomes will I grant eternal life. Rome, Revelation 2 and 3. Did you ever try to overcome anything that's a habit? Not easy, is it? I mean, just simple little things like eating too much or sleeping too much or whatever it might be. It may not be something that's evil of itself, but it's hard to do it in moderation. Hard to do it the way it ought to be done. Overcoming is not easy because it means going against what you want to do. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. So he says it is possible to overcome what happened with Adam and Eve. But it will not be easy, and any of us that try it are going to be the most miserable people on earth if it didn't work because we spent our whole life fighting ourselves to try to do what was right when we didn't want to. Now, why is it easy on somebody that's not trying to overcome? Because they don't have to worry about it. They're not fighting anything. They're not trying to overcome anything. They're just being what they want to be. That's easy. Go with the flow. Rolling with the flow. That's easy. 
Every fish can swim downstream, Herbert Armstrong said, but it takes a lively, strong one to swim upstream. In other words, it's a lot harder to go upstream than it is downstream. Floating doesn't get it. I don't care if you're on a little pink, white cloud floating as a Protestant. Living, walking, acting as Christ walked is hard. He says we're to walk as he walked, to follow in his footsteps. He never allowed himself once to think evil or do evil. That is a hard act to follow, is it not? Now, if you are doing that perfectly and everything's fine between you and God, then you're just like Christ. And I don't believe you. I think the first thing you're doing is lying to yourself. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but that doesn't mean it comes easy. It has it requires overcoming and changing. Every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after they that are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. Verse twenty six The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. It is an enemy, and it came out of the box that day in the Garden of Eden. And it's been out of the box ever since, with every one of us. There is a way. Verse 31, something I didn't... Yeah, I already quoted this, I guess. I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Emmanuel, our Lord, I die daily. As to crucify the flesh, daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That is a carnal human philosophy. Eat and drink, we're going to die anyway, let's live it up while we're alive. You only go around once, enjoy. Hedonistic philosophy. Not the way it works. That's better. It's more fun for a while. It's easier, for sure, not fighting temptation. It's hard to resist temptation, isn't it? The time you're tempted to do wrong and you have to fight yourself. And, and it is temptation because it is something that you should be doing that you don't want to. That's why you're tempted to do that which you're thinking about. You don't want to do this, you want to do that. So that creates a conflict or a temptation where you're pulled. That's no fun. You know what's the easiest way to get over the frustration of temptation? Sin. Temptation goes away. You already did it. Ah, relief. But what is that relief replaced with? Guilt. That's not any fun either, is it? Then you've got to pray and get past the guilt and hope you can be forgiven. And you hope Christ heard you or God heard you. And you're not sure He did, so you pray about it again tomorrow. And then you keep praying about that same old thing over and over and over again because it's still bothering you. And when you finally get over the guilt and the frustration, then you begin to be tempted again. 
It's a catch-22. It's a vicious cycle. And we're in that as long as we're human. There's no getting out of it, people, I'm telling you. You can get your pie-in-the-sky Protestant approach if you want to, but it ain't going to do you no good. My English ain't no good either. But I'm trying to make a point here. Somebody thought that was good English, I'm sure. Different problem. Verse 57, but thanks be to God, speaking of all this, well, the sting of death, verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. How is sin strengthened? Well, the law is good and holy and just, but since the law is there, if you break it, that gives sin strength, because it pulls you down. It isn't the law that pulls you down. It's breaking the law and suffering the penalty that pulls you down. And that would clear up a lot of arguments in Paul if you would just say, we're not under the penalty of the law. Because we can be forgiven and therefore the penalty is not exacted. When you say the, the law kills, no, the penalty of the law is what kills. There is a big difference. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord, Emmanuel the Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be you steadfast, unmovable. Was Eve unmovable? Was Adam unmovable? Were they steadfast in what God had told them? No. They weren't. So Paul is saying, be steadfast and unmovable. Against what? Against pressure that would move you and that would ruin your steadfastness. Because we will have pressure. And pressure is hard to resist. Abounding in the work of the eternal for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the eternal. In other words, there is a reward so the work and the struggle and the frustration is worth it. Now, when you go back to the Garden of Eden, he said your easy life is going to suddenly become hard because you have destroyed the relationship between you and me, and you have destroyed the relationship between yourselves. <coughs> and on top of that, I'm going to make life more difficult through the thorns and thistles in the earth that won't produce for you as well. So there were natural penalties, and then there were other penalties exacted. The death penalty included. As a result of what they did right there, and we're still suffering for, from it and for it. Now, it was the relationships that were destroyed that need to be repaired, right? How do we accomplish that? How can what happened in that garden be fixed? The Protestants think they have the answer. It's very simple. Accept the name of the Lord. You're under grace. Everything's forgiven. Your ticket is punched. You're going to heaven. Well, why don't I just go tonight? Maybe heaven's not all it's cracked up to be. I don't know. Remember that other song, Prop Me Up Before the Jukebox When I Die? I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go tonight. There's more to the story. 
So with that, let's stop for today and pick it up later.